The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm here with Dr. Doreen Grampiche. Good morning, Dr. Grampiche. Good morning, Shannon. Hello, everyone. Lovely to be here. I feel so privileged to be able to be here with you, Dr. Grampiche. I believe the preeminent expert in the field of autism in our time. And I'm so excited and honored to be here with all of you who are watching right now. We are live right now on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. Traven's going to show you what those sites are. We're already saying good morning to Renee and Amanda. If you want to be writing in directly to the show and interact with Dr. Grampiche and with myself, please feel free to do on whatever platform you're watching. In addition to those sites that I just said, you know, probably what well, I don't know, Traven, what the count is right now, 13 other sites that we go live on all at the same time. Don't forget, though, we are also a podcast. And so this this show will podcast later on pretty much to any place that you get your podcast. It's a free download. We're very proud of that. You guys are tearing it up and and sharing and reviewing and let, letting others know. And it's really making a difference. We really want to thank you for that because we we don't spend time and money on marketing. We count on you guys. If you like what you find here to share it with other people and you guys have been doing that, we're just going to ask you to double down on that. We've been adding people, especially uh, from other countries in the last month. Uh, want to say a particular shout out to the friends in Ireland who have been breaking records, downloading our podcast. We're, but we love, we love everybody. Uh, Ty just is saying good morning. Ka is saying good morning. <clears throat> We're sending you prayers. You have your IEE meeting this morning, so we're sending you prayers for that. We're saying hello to Michael from Philadelphia and Ushalad. Good morning to all of you and all of those of you who are being quiet and watching. We're saying good morning to you as well. We had a lot of people write in um, questions. We're going to get to as many of them as, as we can, plus questions that we'll take live. If you're joining us for the first time and you don't know Dr. Grampiche, she is an amazing expert in the field of autism, been working in this field for more than 40. Yes, I said it's four zero, more than 40 years. Hi, Renata from Lithuania. Yes. I, I, we used to have a, a map and we would put pins in the map to show. So nice. And then we couldn't fit them anymore. But I always, whatever you guys say where you're from, I, I mentally put, put a pin. Uh, thank you, Renata. She says she loves the show. Uh, Ushalad says we want to start ABA for my kid, but is it okay to miss school? Schools end at 3 p.m. and my kid is so tired by that time. Uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, let's, let's kick it off with that one, but then I've got to get to some of the questions that came in over the weekend. Sure, what do you think, absolutely. Dr. Grampiche? Yeah, for sure. Um, let's talk about that, Ushalad, but before I get into that, I just want to also wish Ka a good luck today and don't be anxious or nervous. Just remember that your school is supposed to be part of your team and just, you know, go into it with that kind of energy that they are going to be helpful. I, I used to, honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, 
one of my most dreaded meetings were IEP meetings because like I just I couldn't handle it. But um, I will say that you know a lot of times the school is giving positive information, support, and so good luck. And I hope that they really do behave well and contribute to your pro child's program. So that's that. <laughs> and now, who shall I? Yeah. <clears throat> and then you're writing in more and saying, my kid goes to a public school. I don't know how much they work with him. It's like a black hole. Yeah. So I, I always look at school based on the child's needs, just like everything else, right? If it's a younger child, and as long as possible, I keep my kids out of school in order to prepare them so that when they go to school, they're successful. So I don't know how old your child is. I don't remember now, Angela. But if your child, if it's possible to keep your child out, like let's say if it's a four-year-old or five-year-old, then you can do a lot more if you are doing one-to-one -one with the child at home and he's eight. Okay. So I don't think you can actually keep him out. You're option is to do homeschooling if that's something that you would like to do otherwise the other thing you can do is hold an IEP meeting an individualized education plan meeting and talk to the school and come to an agreement about a couple of different things right like that's the whole purpose of these IEP or IEE meetings is to be able to uh, make sure that the period of time our kids are in school is not like wasted time. Like you said, it's not black hole, but they're actually using the time in a positive, supportive, uh, effective way. And in order to do that, there's a number of different things that I suggest. One is if there is a time frame, like if it's possible to reduce the time, let's say just nine to 12 instead of like, you know, eight to two or whatever, uh, then do that because then you can book his part of his day with other therapies, right? As long as his time is being used, like I don't ever tell a parent to pull their child from school and then let them just hang out at home. Like it's very important to book that time with one-to-one -one really, really effective therapies, right? So you can try to move to partial days. Sometimes the school will go with that. The other thing is, obviously, you can ask for an aid in school. So you could, for instance, have one of your, if you have an ABA team, if you have a team of therapists, you can ask the school to allow one of your people to be in the school with your child and work really hard on integration with the other kids, generalization of all the skills that they've learned at home, right? That's the way we usually um, integrate our kids is that we do a massive program at home and then we make sure that they are generalizing to the school by putting one of our therapists, one of our BTs in the school. So that's another thing you can do. The third thing you can do is like ask for accommodations. So ask the school to modify whatever it is they're doing in a way that supports and helps and teaches your child or that works for your child. Now, all that said, if it's just a really bad program where your child is like not doing anything and, you know, very unhappy to be there, then you really need to start looking at other programs and other options. So I hate to say this because I know how busy parents are with everything else going on, 
But the school environment is a really, really important choice because the child is there for like, you know, eight hours a day. And so the bulk of their time is spent there. Let's do our very best to make sure the people there care about our kids and are, are trained enough to actually teach our kids the way they're supposed to learn. Amen to that. And I will just say that we have a playlist um, that you guys can access if you go to our YouTube page. So it's just youtube.com slash autism live. And there's many playlists there. But um, there's one that's just called Know Your Rights with Bonnie Yates. Uh, Bonnie Yates is a special education attorney. She talks about, like, you just heard Dr. Grampiche talk about all the things clinically and that your child needs to consider them as a whole individual. Bonnie will tell you all the things that you need to know legally, like that if you want to pull them out of school, you have to give them uh, 10 days written notice. If you know that you have the right to um, ask them to tell you 20 minute increments, which goal they're working on, um, ways to make sure that they're not making it a black hole. So I really encourage you to head over to that playlist and look at some of the things that Bonnie answers, because I think that that'll be important. We're getting a lot of questions. I am going to take live questions, but I got to get to a couple that came in over the weekend. One of the ones that came in over the weekend, uh, somebody said, I just want to say that this could be triggering. And I thought, oh, you know, a lot of the questions that we have, I should give that disclaimer. This isn't the one that said that, but I definitely think it has the potential to be triggering. So everybody hang on. Uh, this is from a dad who says, my daughter is seven and autistic, partially verbal. During high stress situations, she goes mute. Anyway, she went to my sister's house all happy on Friday. It was a whole family get together. I had to run and deliver some packages. I was gone for like a half an hour. Anyway, when I got back, she was in different clothes and very clearly upset. I asked what happened, and my sister told me that she wet herself after she couldn't have a chocolate pop. Now, here's the thing with my girl. She would never wet herself purposefully. She has extreme anxiety around her toileting to the point of therapy. I don't know what this anxiety is caused by, but it's pretty severe. She was clearly distressed, so I took her home. In the car, she broke down sobbing. But I was, but was unable to tell me what happened. As soon as we got home, she took herself upstairs and put a pull-up on. Pull-ups being accessible for her is a recommendation so that she has more control over herself and has been super cuddly since. She hasn't been using her AAC device or signing at all. She has two therapists and she's due to see them in the next week to see if they'll be able to help me to understand what happened. My family has been awful. My sister, mainly, who's still claiming that she was being a brat and is doing this all for attention. I've since told every family member that we will not, they will not be seeing her or me until the truth has been told, which might, may be overkill, but I don't think my daughter would want to see anyone anyway. Obviously, this has upset a lot of people, especially those who don't know what happened. I'm standing by my statement. If my sister won't tell me of her own uh, back, uh, pressure from other family members may help her along. I'm slightly concerned that I'm being a major butthead, though, to those who want to see her and now can't. I'm starting to feel quite bad despite having explained my situation in full. Am I the butthead here? Uh, and they say, I am the dad in this situation. I just want to hug this dad. Uh, and I want to hug that little girl with permission, asking first, because 
this this makes me so mad, Dr. Grampuche. Talk to all of us. Yeah, I know. And it's really, really tough and disturbing when our kids are clearly showing signs of distress and there's no way for us to know what's what has happened, right? So I I wanna be careful about this because as a parent, I mean I remember when I had my oldest daughter now when she was really, really young, I allowed her, she was probably, I don't know, six or so, I allowed her to go to her best friend's house for a couple of hours on an afternoon. I was very, very uh, careful about my kids whose home they went to. I never let them sleep over, that kind of stuff. But so she went over for a couple of days and then a couple of hours. And when she came back, she said something like, the mom had us undress and take photos or something like that. I lost my mind, right? I mean, I just lost my mind. I called the mom, called the police. I completely lost it. And, um, but so stuff like that does happen, right? On the other hand, uh, you know, there's, it's also possible that everyone has their own parenting style. And for instance, the sister in this case may have not known how to handle a child with special needs, how to manage, how to communicate. And, Perhaps someone in their home had, has been punitive uh, or has whatever it is, right? And maybe it was done without bad intention, right? It was done out of just not knowing better. And now, of course, they're angry because your child is, is, is by showing these signs, is communicating, right? And I always say our kids, their behaviors are their form of communication. And so now whoever maybe yelled at her or punished her in some way or, or you know, made her uncomfortable is, is doubling down because they don't want to be the, the culprit. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's, there's value in allowing some of the family, some of the individual members who really want to see her to come over and visit as long as you're there. I think it's important for your child to not develop a major phobia at, at this point. I'm always very careful about how the child reacts. We have our own feelings, but our kids will see our anger and our protection of them. And then they will, they sometimes may interpret that as, as, oh, I have to be afraid of people. I have to be afraid of something. And then that becomes like a major phobia. So. I would reintroduce her to at least some of the family members, the ones that were maybe less involved with this situation, and just make sure that it is gradual and that, you know, you let this moment pass. The past is the past. There's very little we can do about it other than learn. And, you know, it's a learning situation, obviously, for everyone where you no longer trust that particular group to leave your child there. So that's that's a, a lesson learned. But going forward, there might be other things that are important for your child, for your daughter, uh, to be able to interact with the family or have, have participate in some social family events. What I love about what this dad has done, and I just want to you know, congratulate him. Cause I know that when you do something and you draw a line and you go, am I the butthead here? Am I the butthead here? Yeah. And yeah. I just want to say, what's clear to me is that you chose your daughter yeah. and that's clear to your family. And that's clear to your sister. 
And, yeah. and that needs to be clear to your sister because I don't know what happened, but the fact that she's doubling down on the fact that your daughter was a brat. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I just want to, I just want to take yeah. off my shoes. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And you're right, and, Shannon. Like, don't feel guilty about it. Like, sometimes we look back and we're like, oh, did I overreact? That's not, you were, you did the right thing. And good for you for, for reacting that way because I think it, it makes everyone understand how, uh, you know, how important this is, how protective you are, how, like, you don't care. And they, you'll do, you'll go to any limits to protect your child. So, I think that's all good. I wouldn't feel bad at all. I don't think you've done anything wrong at all. Um, and, you know, good for you for, for yeah. actually reacting that way because I think people need to realize, like, they, just because a child can't communicate, you can't, this is just horrible. It's horrible. And, and what a wonderful message in all of this mess, and I feel so bad for you and for your daughter, but, but that's a good thing that came out of this was that she will see that you are choosing her and the rest of your family saw it too. And if they don't toe the line, you know what I say, ta-ta. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, don't have, I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm going to pick my kid. So, yeah. you know, and, if, and, and you have your feelings about that over there. They're none of my business how you feel about that. So I'm, I'm, I'm sending that down because yes. good for setting boundaries and standing your ground. I fully agree with that. Good job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 2008 says my son who's eight, uh, also uses his verbal skills to mand for things and answer very, very simple questions like, how are you doing? And he answers, I'm fine, but how can I help him to start a conversation? A very common question that we get here. Really? Um, gosh, that's such a, there's such a, um, complex answer to that so i'm going to try and simplify it so there's a series of steps that we generally go through in language development right so the very first one is asking for things and if you think about just typically developing let's say one-year-old babies they are always asking for things right juice mama this that whatever and they're also if they're if they're not using their words they're also pointing which is essentially I want that, I want this. And so manding or requesting items is the very first, earliest, it follows imitation, but anyway, it's one of the first kind of independent types of language that we exhibit as people, as humans. The next one is labeling objects. So and often our kids will label objects because what they are trying to accomplish is not that they want the object, they just want you to share their thought. So this is a, a very, very important part of development, which is when, you know, like imagine your toddler sitting in the back seat of the car, you're driving and they are constantly labeling the things they see, right? Fire truck, tree, red, whatever it is, right? And they're just labeling. And the only thing they want out of labeling is for you to share that thought, right? And to, to see what they are pointing to or what they're um, actually labeling, which is the first kind of really, really, not the first, but one of the most important, significant uh, types of what we call joint attention, right? They're like, hey, look at what I'm seeing. And that is a really key next step that your child has to develop. After tacting, that's called tacting. After tacting, we go into what's called interverbals, which is just commenting on things that are 
not necessarily present, right? So you could just say, for instance, you know, you ask the child a question and they don't have to look in order to answer it. So like, what color is the sky? Blue. Or, you know, what did you eat? Cake or whatever it is. So, um, and that's introverbal, which is controlled a different, completely different way. But the question asked was, what do I do to get my child to conversational level? And it's a lot. It's not just teaching a few labels or a few intraverbals or anything like that. You, your child, what we generally do is we build conversation. So we will start with responses. As I said, we'll usually like start with man's and then get the child tacting. But at the same time, we're also teaching the child a variety of different just labels. So for instance, things like object labels, you know, what is it? It's a truck. And then we go on to colors or attributes of those labels, like all the different colors, the different sizes, um, all that, because what we're trying to do is expand the speech. Now I will ask the child and I'll have three trucks and I'll say, what is it? And I want the child to say, it's a blue truck. It's a green truck. It's a big truck. It's a little truck, that kind of stuff. Right. And then now we're at, let's say two to three three to four word phrases, it is a blue truck. And then you'll go on to much more abstract language, like, you know, what do you do with a truck? Um, what do you do with scissors? That kind of stuff. And you start to like expand, have the child expand their language. That is kind of the next step. You're still not at conversational. Conversational speech is really advanced speech it gets you to the point where like you, you would have to go through lessons where you're teaching your child everything from uh you know these are the things i'm interested in but those are the things this other person is interested in so i have to learn to share and listen as well as talk when they talk about something i have to be able to build on it that's another lesson like someone will make a comment and you have to be able to build on that comment Another lesson is how do I, uh, like if the, if the subject has ended, how do we introduce a new subject? That's a different lesson. Another conversational skill is if the child like is moving away, how do I get their back? That's called repairing conversation. There's about 10 or 12 different lessons that all have to be taught in order for a child to actually converse take turns, know the appropriate subject, know the appropriate audience, uh, be able to, you know, keep everybody's interest, pay attention to body language and, and those types of things so that they can react appropriately. But for now, I don't think your child's there yet, but for now, I would suggest that you go back and focus on tacting, which is just kind of labels that are, you just teach the child to label as many things as they can in their environment. Let's start there and then gradually you'll build on those labels and expand speech. Okay, so let's call the elephant out into the room here because all the things that you just described, I think the thing that I want parents to know the most is that all of this takes time. Oh yeah. And we're talking hours and weeks and months and years. And it's like pizza dough that you've got to massage it and you've got to massage it on a regular basis or it snaps back. That's right. And, and here's the problem that uh, what that what people have access to usually freely is this much speech therapy and they'll never, no one is ever going to fund you enough speech therapy to be able to do what Dr. Grampy Shea is talking about. 
And, and to the point where some speech therapists don't even know how to get past the labels because they've never been given the funding to get past them. Now, there's some great speech. We have a, a speech and language pathologist who's going to be joining us for a whole series here on the show that she's going to give you some some you know short lessons to be able to do. Because I told her that this is the thing that we get asked probably the most, Dr. Ramache. Your kids have been given this much speech so that they know how to say water but not how to say I'm feeling upset today or my friend just stepped on my foot. Well, how do you feel today? And that, that can, you know, that, that back and forth. A lot of us got to speech because we had good ABA, good quality ABA, and we doubled down and got enough of it. And they were good trained ABA therapists so that they knew how to do that. But it, for my kid, it was 40 hours a week. For some people, it might have been 30 hours a week, but it was a lot, a lot, a lot for more than a year. So, you know, we've, we have had several people writing in and saying, you know, uh, one from Canada who says, I, you know, but I, they're not even giving us this speech therapy. So aside from we are going to be giving you that speech and language pathologist who's going to take little lessons at a time so that you guys can have something, an activity to do with your kiddos. Uh, but until we have that for folks, and while we have that, Dr. Grampichet, what do you recommend? Yeah, so, you know, every from a behavioral perspective, first of all, let me back up and just say there's, because there's a lot of questions coming in and asking about sort of speech versus ABA. And yes, you do a, a lot of speech type activities and language type activities in ABA. There's no question. I usually recommend speech therapy when, uh, well, different reasons one reason is sometimes you can't get enough aba and then i want your child to be packed with activities i would recommend a speech therapist separately when your child is plateauing in their language with their aba program speech paths have especially speech pathologists who are trained in methods like the prompt technique they have ways that they will get your child to initiate uh, vocalization or sound, and then to connect that to various objects. And they're better at that portion. <clears throat> so that helps. And then it, through ABA, obviously, you re reward that, right? So when the child finally says cup, for instance, you will actually make sure they get access to a cup where they know that this is the label for this object. So if you have a speech path, and speech paths, by the way, usually will only do two or three hours a week with the child. It's unlikely that they will do more than that. And <clears throat> whereas ABA, as Shannon said, should be happening anywhere between 20 to 40 hours a week in most cases. And that's like where a lot of the work is done. The, the combination, I'm always for bringing in multidisciplines so that you are not missing anything, right? I'm overseeing a child right now and our team is pretty extensive. I mean, I have about four or five really well-trained behavior analysts, and then I have and behavior technicians. I do have a speech pathologist, I have two OTs on the case. I also have the child working with a nutritionist, a physician who can um, uh, you know, take care of all the medication and make sure the child is healthy and all that. The nutritionist watches over the diet, and then, of course, <clears throat> on top of that, we have like a variety of different people like hypotherapy and yoga and a lot of other types of resources. So I want to make sure my child's getting expertise from every possible area that, that they can. 
But if you're in a country where you can't access these services, and if you're like thinking, you know, how do I get my child to vocalize? There are a lot of different things online when you look online and just look for initiating speech through ABA or initiating speech through, through speech therapy. There's a lot of little exercises. It's really just about producing a sound and you reward that. And then whenever that sound is produced, you, get, you connect it to an object. I know it's hard to explain, but... There, it is a, a lot of work, and I saw that someone else had written, oh, I thought it was just a few months. It's this type of stuff, getting a child to vocalize and then get to conversational speech, for instance, could take three years or, or more of intensive work. So please don't be discouraged and just keep going and keep progressing because our kids also... The good news is I've always seen that our kids, once they have a certain level of comprehension of language, they start to pick it up from their peers and they start to learn a lot faster from their environment. It's just that the very first year or two, our kids are not really paying attention to the speech of others. And so once you get them to a point where it's not, doesn't sound just like babble to them, it's actually, it sounds like words. Then they start to pick it up from from other kids, from you, from TV, from computers, from everywhere, and it it accelerates and they learn faster. That way. Yeah, this is all hard stuff, and I see a lot of people making comments about access to things and and the amount of time and dis discouragement. I always think about what Nancy Allspot Jackson always says: "Be a dog on a pork chop." You you, you know you really got to pack your backpack on this one and say we're on a journey. And we're just going to keep moving in a direction. And, and, and we don't know where we're going to end up, but we're just going to keep on moving, be a dog on a pork chop. Every, if every day, well, the thing that you say all the time, Dr. Grant Pichet, if you do enough of the right things often enough, good things happen. Yeah. And so every day you find more ways to, to, you know, just inch it along a little bit more and you'll find that you really get to some incredible places. I want to say hello to Fatima who says, hi, uh, dear Dr. Doreen and Shannon. It's always great to see you. Special thank you from my sister in Switzerland for all your help. Uh, love from all of us to you both and back to you as well. Honey says, good morning. My son is almost four and has good language. He's not going to school yet and he's not doing peer play. Um, we're doing ABA therapy at home. How do we produce peer play? It's a great question. Yeah, so honey, I'm trying to find that question actually. It's way back at the beginning. There's a yeah, long, and, there it is. long yeah. and, and he's four years old. Okay, good. And he's not going to school yet. This is actually great. So one of the, um, what I would, and assuming, I'm assuming that he has some basic language, right? So in other words, he understands things that other four-year-olds would say, most things, and is able to express his needs and maybe interact when playing with an object or a toy or, or verbally interact a little bit. What I would do is I would invite one other child. I would find a child, and he's four. I always like for a young, for a four-year-old boy, I always recommend, believe it or not, a five- or six-year-old girl to start playing with because five- and six-year-old girls you will often find are little teachers, 
and little teacher is what you need right now. So if you can find in the neighborhood or just, you know, maybe another child who doesn't have to be a little girl, but if you can find a cousin or a neighbor child who's about the same age and who is uh, just, you know, the t an older child, let's say, in their own family, a child who kind of wants to, you know, shelter another child and bring them up and help them learn. That's the kind of child you need. Bring them, if you can invite them to your house. And then you, what we do and what, what you can do as a parent is set up play dates, right? And you, they're, they're moderated. So you are always there or an adult is there and you basically begin a small game. Just I would do outside games at first that are fun for both kids, like three-legged races or just, you know, throwing a ball around or anything that your child is also good at and the other child is interested in. And then I would inter make, help the children interact in that game. I mean, it's a four-year-old, so you could do, you know, duck, duck, goose or just little games like that that are a lot of fun. And, um, and, and follow the leader, that sort of stuff. And then uh, as your child gets better with this one other child, you can kind of back out and allow them to interact on their own, always keeping an eye on it. And when that becomes solid, which I would say will take several months, um, and when you see that there's a solid interaction, then what I would do is I would actually introduce another single child to your child, right? I, I'm not ready yet to have two children with your child. I want to have your child interacting with another single child. When your child is able to interact with one or two other kids, then it's time to have a small group at the house. That means your child with perhaps two other kids that your child's familiar with. And the reason I'm very cautious about that is that I never want a situation where the, the two other kids interact with each other and your child starts to feel left out. So I want to make sure your child is closer bonded to those two individual kids so they are interacting with your child. And then once you have that going, then it's time. So by the time he gets to school, maybe next year, then he won't feel as uncomfortable with the situation. Again, for our kids, I even prep that. I will take the child to the school over the summer just so they are like familiar with the classroom. They know where everything is. They can kind of meet the teachers and, and prep whatever, as much as you can prep, that's, that's where you get success. Wonderful. I, you know, I took that advice so to heart um, and I, it's the best advice in the world. So honestly, um, because our kids need a place and a, and a way to work up. I gotta, I gotta go to uh, somebody who's written in, and their handle—it's the best handle ever in the whole world—is uh, big cup of red Kool Aid and neck bone sandwich. Which I, I mean, I'm sorry, that needs to be the title of an album or a book or something. First of all, you get seven stars for having an amazing handle. Um, but I'm very sorry to see what they've written in. They said my family hates me for my autism and exploited me for my autism and badmouthed me. My nephew is six and has autism and they treat him bad for it. Um, I just have to acknowledge, you know, what you're saying. And I, I you know, I want to hear from Dr. Grampy Jay, but I, 
I am sorry to hear that. There are no, there are no other words, but I just want to tell you that obviously you're an amazing person. Uh, you're a, you're a creative person because anybody who would name themselves that on social media, I want to be friends with, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And if, some, and, and sometimes our family of origin doesn't get us. I don't understand why that is, but I know that there is a big community of people out there who would want to get to know you and would appreciate you for who you are. And I hope that someday your family does. Um, but Dr. Grand Pichet, you're, you're so much better at this. Help us. No, not at all, Shannon. It's, you know, I gotta say, I'm now that I'm on social media, I, I never, before I retired from running card, I never really had the time. And now that I'm kind of on social media and I'm trying to continue to help people through these resources, like our show, of course, and through my TikTok and stuff, I've started to read a lot of comments that are on social media. And it is, there's, I have two feelings about it. One is that a lot of more people are coming to realize that they have symptoms of autism, whereas probably 10 years ago, they, it wasn't the case. I, I think a lot more people are starting to feel like, this is me, like, these are the issues I have. And I've had a very, very tough life because no one understood this before. So there's a lot of that, but there's also a lot of now that that now now that higher functioning individuals on the spectrum are becoming vocal, such as our the person who wrote in, we're seeing that there's a lot of pain that they have experienced due to being treated in a way that they didn't want to be treated, and I want to just kind of like explain that I think a lot of people, uh, neurotypical people, don't know how to react or treat or behave around an, an individual who is uh, different in any way. And they, they just, they feel self-conscious and they feel confused and they uh, don't know how to react. And so sometimes the way they react, they just, they kind of shut you out because they don't know how to interact with someone who's different. And a lot of times it's not intentional. I want to say that because I've seen this with a lot of my friends. They just, they, they feel uncomfortable and they don't know how to interact with someone whose response will be a little different than what they expect. So... Um, I don't want to necessarily think that people are all evil and intentionally doing things to hurt those of us who are not neurotypical. I think they just don't know. And they don't know how, and they don't know that it's okay to be different. They don't know that it's okay to not respond. They don't know that you know, they shouldn't get too close because they might bother you. They, they don't know what they don't know. And so we can't blame them. We have to continue to educate people and explain to people that, listen, you know, I am totally fine interacting with you, but I don't want to go to a noisy place. Or, hey, listen, you know, you're getting a little too close and it's disturbing me. Or, 
you know, what you just did there makes me feel like you're mocking me. Those, you don't know these things. And we just have to teach them and educate them. And, and then over time, I promise you, this will get better. Because if I thought, if I would have never guessed 20 years ago, I would have never guessed that there would be so many individuals with autism who are now vocal about it and have a voice and are able to change society. Like Shannon, you and I were talking once about uh, you know, the fact that now when there's, let's say, a TV series, uh, instead of putting on someone who doesn't have autism, a lot of the shows are starting to hire actually autistic actors, which is fantastic. And that's a big, that's a huge progress from, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That would have never happened. So we society is progressing. As I said last year, I did a big training for Oracle, which is a huge company because their interest was in learning how to modify their environment at work for those who are on the spectrum to be happier. So things are changing. The general world is starting to learn more. But, you know, and I'm so sorry that you feel like you're, you know, you've been hurt. Um, it's, it just comes from not knowing. It comes from a place of just not knowing, I think, in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love Gareth has said uh, they don't slow down their brain to understand sometimes. And because we are, liter- uh, we are literally thinking, uh, we need people to listen more. It's time to stand tall and be who we are. And I think that a lot of people in the autism community are are seeing that and taking advantage of it. And I think it was always happening, but I think it's just that you have more numbers now. Um, but but it takes everybody listening. And, and listen, you know, I always say that my job right now, there were a lot of years when, there were, when my son wasn't able to advocate for himself. So I was his advocate. Yeah. And now that he advocates for himself, my job is to be a student and an ally. And I always say, I want to be a student and I want to sit in the front row of the classroom. I don't know everything and I want to learn. And I, and I think that, um, I'm not going to get it right all the time. And I love, um, my dear friend, Alex Blank, who, whenever I'm around him, he will correct me like 13 times an evening and say, I'll say something, you know, go, well, Shannon, that was very ableist. And I go, it was, um, but. But I try to be in a place of, of, of saying, oh, okay, well, then maybe I didn't get that right um, to teach me so I can learn better for next time. And I think we all need to get in that space and stop being so precious and defensive. Um, it's hard because you don't ever want to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. Um, but sometimes I need to be admit that I'm wrong so that I can be in a place to learn. We're moving. We're getting in a direction. Uh, but, but we will get there. I got to switch to some of these questions that came in over the weekend. This is the one that says this may be triggering. So everybody hold on. I'm a father to a lovely 17 year old daughter. She was diagnosed with level two autism, mid functioning. She is nonverbal and uses her phone's text to speech. She's a junior in high school this year, and she functions at a seventh grade level. Her teacher, who I will call Mr. Smith, started working at her school last year during her sophomore year. I was concerned about the mention of him in every sentence being typed on her phone. 
Recently, I found out that Mr. Smith has been giving my daughter 11th grade work simply because he believes that she's in 11th grade, she can do it. He's been restraining her, strapping her to the seat and sometimes tying her arms and strapping them to her lap so that she can't flap them around or jump since she does a lot of that. Mr. Smith threatened to call her wrestling coach and basketball coach to take her out of her sports because she could be a distraction to the rest of the team and she can't be jumping and flapping her arms in the middle of a wrestling match or doing that in a basketball game. So she needs to not be in sports. And he also said, because she is in wrestling, she is a very, is very strong and is a risk, has a risk of hurting herself or others. He says she's 17 and she's tall. I mean, she's five foot 10. It's not like she's five and I can pry her off of me with ease. I kind of have to fight her. This is what the teacher is saying. And then, uh, then proceeds to go off on me saying he's doing nothing wrong by restraining her and giving her grade level work rather than the work at her cognitive level, neither of which are allowed in her IEP. And dad says, this makes my blood boil. Well, dad, I think we're all right there with you. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Grampuche, you know what Ileana Vincent says, <laughs> heal us, you know, heal, heal, heal. Cause this, Ooh, I have things, but I know you want to say things. I just, I'm baffled that that kind of thing could continue to happen in this day and age. Like I do remember, gosh, probably in the, 90s i want to say where i knew a speech therapist who actually used to do that and strap the kids down in order to learn and it was it's illegal let me just start right there and you should never allow that and it is report this teacher immediately uh this the fact that the school if the school is aware of this you can sue the school and you should. And this is so, in so many ways, inappropriate. I don't even know where to start. Uh, but that is not how we treat our kids. That is not how we educate our kids. It makes my blood boil, too, just hearing this story. And none of this is okay. And I, let's just start with getting rid of this teacher and, and you know, deal with maybe remove her from the school because the school definitely is in the wrong as well if they're aware of this and, and nobody's doing anything about it I'm, I'm i'm blown away which state are you in like how does that even happen in this day and age it's so abusive that is abuse like let's just be very clear and that's it's not okay by any means whatsoever even a child who is aggressive and assaultive, nobody has the right to tie them down. So that's just is crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, w I would say, um, you know, uh, my first question is what state are you in? Because there are some states that have different restraint laws. Um, but my second thing would be to say to this parent, you need to get out your child's IEP and see on the front page, there's a place where it says BIP attached see if that is checked. That means that there's a behavior intervention plan for when your daughter is off task or whatever. Um, and that you just want to know where you stand. And if there is a BIP for when, you're, when your daughter is having a hard time, 
that is that and if it, that box is checked, it's part of the document. It's legally enforceable. Either way, they're in violation of the IEP because he says he's giving her 11th grade work because she can do it and he's not doing what the IEP says. So they're, and those are the words you got to use. You got to say you're in violation of my IEP. Those are the serious words and the school will listen to you when you say that. But I, I think Dr. Grampichet is right. I, uh, we, when Bonnie Yates is on the show, she always gives a website, copaa.org. That's the Council of uh, Parent Attorneys and Advocates. Mm -hmm. And you can generally, they, you can go put your zip code in and they'll tell you who is in your area. And, you know, we can't give a recommendation for anyone and everyone on that site. But in general, those are people who know it and get it because they've been there before you as parents. Um, and, and they tend to be really on the money and know what's going on with your district. Um, but I, I would certainly be talking to someone, but I wouldn't send her back to that school. Um, I, I would notify them that it's unsafe, that they're in violation of the IEP and that you're not sending her back until they have an emergency IEP. And because this person is probably doing this to other students too. I've been a teacher in the system. And until people say he's doing this, sometimes a bad principal doesn't know. Yeah. A good principal would know. Um, but a bad principal won't, and and you need to be aware of that. If they aren't aware that he's doing this, somebody is not minding the shop. Yeah, and and Shannon, what the what the parent wrote here is that it's not even like the child is doing anything aggressive. The child is hand flapping, yeah, which is a self stimulatory behavior, and to, to tie the child's hands down in order to prevent them from hand flapping is ridiculous. There's yes. no yeah, so yeah, just you gotta you gotta get these people, as Sarah says, you gotta take some legal action. I would really go in with the help of a parent advocate or attorney. I would not deal with the school on my own at this point. It's, it's yeah. just egregious. There's no other word for it. Uh, absolutely. Just absolutely makes me crazy. Uh, someone else, uh, has to have seen this also. It's not like he's alone with a child, but often it's hard to get other students. If he's doing this sometimes because it's that authority role, um, if he's doing this, listen, I've heard, I've had aides on the show who said that they left being an aide in the classroom because they saw an abusive teacher. And when they complained, they suddenly didn't get their health benefits and stuff. Unfortunately, we'd all like to believe that everyone who's a court reporter will report, but people get uh, afraid. Um, so we still have to be our best uh, advocates for our kids, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Want to switch to another thing that came in over the weekend. My oldest is autistic and has been diagnosed with separation anxiety and demand avoidance. We homeschool because the separation anxiety is just too big for him. And every day was a multi-hour struggle to get him to leave. And then he was miserable the whole time. He's only really okay being alone if he's reading. He loves his little brother, but since uh, his little brother was around two, the 10-year-old's head has this overwhelming need to menace, harshly criticize, attack, or threaten him. He's never deliberately hurt him physically, and he's actually very protective of him. A lot of his harshest behavior is when he's worried his brother is doing something unsafe. He feels awful about how he treats his little brother, but he doesn't believe that it's possible to learn to change. 
and we're at a loss for supporting him. It seems to us that he's in a constant state of fight or flight. Sometimes even if we're just snuggling on the couch, because snuggling with someone while reading a book or playing a board game is like his idea of heaven. My wife has a background in special ed. We believe very strongly in respecting children as people, in playfulness, setting limits with warmth and compassion, etc. Some of the behavioral approaches that, that have been recommended to us seem antithetical to those values or seem impossible to implement outside of a very controlled therapeutic environment, which a home is not. And, and they have said help in big capital letters. It's dad day. Yeah, yeah, it is true. And also very eloquent dad. Uh, yeah. He has really analyzed this and thought this through. So this is very important. There's a lot of different parts of this question that I, I kind of want to address. What just talking first about what's going on with your child, um, social anxiety, absolutely. I mean, and just the fact that you start with he has social anxiety, uh, demands separation anxiety, separation. yeah, 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 separation anxiety is it's anxiety, right? And uh, anxiety is always best treated, and there's thousands of articles on this. Anxiety is always best treated when there are two interventions occurring at the same time. One is behavioral or cognitive behavioral, depending on the level of the child. And the second is medical. And so we have a lot of different medications that help anxiety. I don't know if you are uh, perhaps not really interested in trying medications, but I'm going to tell you about them. Um, the medications that are used for anxiety are the same medication that is used for depression. Anxiety and depression are pretty much the same uh, disorder. One is termed internal, one is about external. They're pretty much the same thing. And they have the, the medication is therefore the same. The medication is serotonin reuptake inhibitors or, or you know, uh, medications that control our neurotransmitters. So they could be uh, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors or serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but nevertheless, they are very effective and they do not change your overall behavior in a way that is noticeable. In other words, they don't change your personality. Let's put it that way. They don't change your personality. They don't interfere with your uh, thinking. They just simply... Uh, allow your own serotonin to remain in your body for a little bit longer so that you uptake, you, you're the next nerve cell re receives it. And so just over time, over a period of three, four weeks, these medications result in us having higher, slightly higher levels of our own neurotransmitters, serotonin being the key one, which makes us calm down a little bit. They make us less agitated. They make us lose our temper less. They make us um, just a little bit more positive and feel safe. They make us feel safe. They make us feel um, in charge of our environment. So I do recommend that for you. I also suggest that you maybe work, depending again on the level of functioning of your child, work with a behaviorist or a cognitive behaviorist 
to focus on just activities and exercises that your child can do that helps them feel safe. Because clearly there's, uh, you know, everything you said, it's separation anxiety, which, which is, I don't feel safe unless one of my parents are here. Um, cuddling and, you know, being cozy is very much like having a safety blanket. This is my safe place. There's a lot of stuff you can do that will help your child gradually let go um, of, of being that attached to you and actually still feel safe. And again, even his biggest fear and control over his sibling is about safety. He's worried that his sibling is doing something unsafe. So there's something going on with your child about just safety and not feeling safe and secure in their own world. And, and that's something that a, a good therapist can help you with because there's a lot of activities that you can do where your child begins to feel safe. So that's super important. That's what I recommend you do. Um, you know, and there are different types of behaviors. I can understand from where you're coming that uh, ABA contingencies might not work for you. You might find them to be tough. And you are right. A lot of times ABA is much more effective in an experimental setting and it's harder to implement in the home, but it is possible. It's just harder to do. Um, that All that aside, the other portion of what I really want to quickly say is please pay attention to the sibling. Uh, so many times the entire family unit is focused on the child with special needs and the sibling um, just doesn't get the attention and they don't get what they deserve. So I know it's hard. I know you're limited. I completely understand that you are, both parents are doing as much as they possibly can. I get that. But make sure that your sibling doesn't be is not victimized by everything else that's going on because your sibling has their own needs the sibling has to also have their own does the sibling ever get uh time with you and your spouse alone does your sibling ever get their own special attention have you can you please work with a therapist to make sure that your sibling is, is adhering to rules you set and not necessarily uh, adhering to rules that are made by, the, by your special needs child. Because that's just too much to want to make sure you're happy and want to make sure their sibling, you know, the, the special needs sibling doesn't get mad at them. That's too much. So you have to turn things around and make it okay for the sibling. That is vital, I think. Yeah. But I do, I want to acknowledge though, something you said though, about, I think a lot of times parents think, well, my child is experiencing anxiety. So there's, there's no toolbox. There's nothing to be done and, and nothing could be further from the truth. That yeah. one of the things that a lot of our kids have is that they are, um, you know, they like rituals and they, they like rules and we can set different rules for them. We can, we can change it around. We can help them to deal yep. with their feelings. We can give them coping techniques. Um, but, but you have to be willing to do all of those things. And it takes time and patience. 
Uh, there were so many more questions I wanted to get to both live and from the weekend. I want to remind you that Dr. Grampy Shea can answer questions on TikTok now. Yeah, so, just quickly, Shannon, because I, yeah. I read the last question about sleep and yeah. from Renee and Elvira. I just want to say, you guys, I just did, I think, seven uh, segments on TikTok about sleep. And they're all going up this week. And one of the questions is exactly this, Renee, which is, uh, well, you know, you're sleeping with your child and how do you exit yourself from their room? So check out Ask Dr. Doreen on TikTok. It'll come up sometime this week. Okay. So, um, and, and, and we'll move some of these questions that we've gotten where appropriate over to uh, ask Dr. Doreen. And of course, she'll be back next week as well. I want to thank Dr. Grampy Shea for being here and for all of her wisdom. I want to thank all of you for being here. Please don't miss tomorrow's show. For the first time ever, we're having Rachel Bird on. She is the mom of Kobe Bird, the actor. We've seen him on The Good Doctor and, of course, on Netflix's Lock and Key. But we've never had mom on before. And she makes the most incredible gluten-free, dairy-free things you would ever. She has an Instagram that you should check out that it's called Small Kitchen Big Flavor. Um, plus she can craft anyone under the table. I swear she's like Martha Stewart in a different pair of pants. Um, and the gluten-free dairy-free version, but she's also hilarious and one of my best friends. So she's going to be here tomorrow to talk about all of those things and how, how you raise a, a scholar and a gentleman to be, um, an actor on, uh, <laughs> on many shows. So all of that tomorrow. And then on Thursday, Nancy Allspaugh Jackson joins us. We've got an amazing mom, Becky Eastep, for our autism family portraits and other wonderful guests. So tune in for that. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.